For Cybercrime Radio, I'm Heather Engel. Today I'm talking with Michelle Hadley. Michelle was framed for online crimes against her ex-fiance Ian Diaz and his new wife, an ordeal that lasted several years. Earlier this year, a federal jury convicted Diaz of cyberstalking, conspiracy to commit cyberstalking, and perjury. Michelle is talking with me about her experience. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. You were accused of sending threatening messages and cyberstalking your ex's new wife. Can you give us an overview of what happened? Yeah. So in 2014, I had gotten out of a eight-year relationship with a high school sweetheart and was going out into the dating world for the first time as sort of an adult, you know, post-college. I worked long hours. And so I downloaded a dating app to try and meet people. It was my first time experiencing dating apps. And um, met Ian Diaz on this dating app. He told me he was a U.S. Marshal. He, you know, was quite a bit older than me, I think about nine or 10 years. And I remember thinking, kind of especially after my relationship ended, that this was exactly what I was looking for, right? Someone who was in a stable job, a stable person. I remember even thinking, oh, they background check <laughs> U.S. Marshals. So surely, you know, he's been kind of thoroughly vetted, you know, and he wants to serve and protect, so he must be a good person. And so we started dating. And, you know, after the first date, things moved very quickly. So by the second date, he was, you know, telling me that he loved me and, you know, asking me what my income was and moving things forward very quickly from there. And as the relationship progressed, you know, he started to exhibit very controlling behaviors. He exhibited a lot of, I guess what I would call erratic, explosive behavior, you know, where, for example, he would drive angrily if he was upset at me or, you know, yell at me if he was upset at me for basically calling out something that he had done that I felt was inappropriate across boundaries. He also started to pressure me to engage in sexual activities I wasn't comfortable with. And, you know, it was one of those situations where no matter how many times I told him no, it seemed like he didn't want to accept the no. So he would keep pressuring me in different ways. Sometimes it was by comparing me to exes or other women and saying that, you know, if I just did this thing, you know, I would be more attractive. He would desire me more. And they had done it. And it was so sexy and wonderful when they did it. And... You kind of kept at that, you know, until actually one day I finally gave in under the pretense that he would stop asking if I gave him what he wanted. Of course, he didn't. <laughs> I guess speaks to my naivety at that time. But I remember kind of thinking, OK, if I do it this once, he said he'll stop asking. And he didn't. It was an ongoing kind of source of contention in our relationship and a great deal of stress for me. And in fact, there was one incident in particular where after I had already done it and I was pretty upset about even having been pressured into doing it. And he was still pressuring me. And he was also telling me that, you know, the video he took of me, he hadn't deleted that even though he had told me he had deleted it. And I actually raised my voice in him and I said, that's it. I've already asked you to stop asking me to do this. If you ever ask me again, I'm leaving. And he pulled out his phone and he actually threatened to call the police on me because you know, I was standing up for myself. <laughs> and that was kind of the tone of the relationship. I would try to take a stand on something or even leave. And there were always threats, whether it was threats of litigation or threats of calling the cops or anything along those lines. We eventually bought a condo together. And when I say we bought, I put the entire down payment down on the condo. 
and we were both on the deed, both on the mortgage. You know, I always had good jobs when I was in my 20s, you know, made, I would say, a really good salary for someone that age, which is very fortunate. I kind of fell into the right positions and I was always a hard worker. So I think when he met me, he saw an opportunity to get into property. And I also obviously had enough savings to put a down payment down. Well, things sort of escalated after we moved into the condo. The abuse started to get worse. He started to disappear for days at a time. It was very chaotic and kind of a very dark time in the relationship. And finally, you know, I opened up to my sister about some of the things that had been happening, you know, the sexually coercive behavior, some of the financial abuse, some of the ways that he would rage at me, you know, when I brought things up. And she called me actually in tears. And it was like, this isn't right, you know, how he's treating you, what he's doing. I think it was the first time that I kind of woke up and saw the situation for what it is. Because when you're in these relationships, it's so insidious, right? I mean, it starts out as almost a fairy tale. And then the abuse starts out slowly. They just slowly start chipping away at you until kind of by the time it gets as bad as it was at that point, you almost don't recognize yourself. They've kind of taken you outside of your identity, your personality. They've pushed all of your boundaries so much that you kind of forget what it's like to be treated like a human. <laughs> and to have someone who was so close to me, who I knew cared about me, have such a emotional reaction to hearing what he had been doing to me. I actually titled the subject line of the email I sent her where I expressed all of this, I need a crazy check because there was so much gaslighting in the relationship, I was starting to think I was crazy and there was something wrong with me. And it was having that external voice to realize not only am I not crazy, but the stuff that he is doing is absolutely not okay and actually quite scary. I didn't actually leave right after that, but it planted enough of a seed that the next time he started to engage in behaviors that were very clearly intended to hurt me, I took a stand and I left the condo, left the relationship and drove off with basically as much stuff as I could fit in my car and got out. But as I think many of us know, or at least any of us who are familiar with intimate partner violence and domestic violence and relationships, it's often not over <laughs> when you leave. <laughs> And it certainly wasn't. So we ended up having to battle over the condo. He did not want to move out. And in fact, he really did not want to settle the condo issue at all because that would mean kind of giving me my freedom, right? So, you know, after some really traumatic weeks of going back and forth with him over the condo issue, that finally culminated in him sending me an agreement that would allow him to assume the mortgage on the condo and take over the condo completely. That also happened to include a gag order on me where I wasn't allowed to report him for any past or future crimes against me. I realized I needed to get attorneys <laughs> because I wasn't dealing you know, with someone who was operating in good faith. And also because it was really actually doing a number on my mental health to engage with him regularly. If you've never been in a relationship with someone like this, what people don't realize is, especially if you're just fresh out of the relationship and you're just kind of fresh out of this gaslighting dynamic and 
you know, when they're engaging in all this post-separation abuse, you know, I mean, he was telling people he was having people check up on me at my work because he had connections there and, you know, really telling me a lot of very threatening almost things, like things that were intended to scare me or make me sort of feel like he was watching me or he had power over me. To try and engage with someone like that who is not operating in good faith, he really just wants to have as much power and control over you as possible. It's almost impossible to do that successfully. I would actually now, looking back at what I went through, any survivor who came to me with a situation where there was anything they had to deal with that could potentially be a legal issue, I would tell them, you need to get an attorney right away. You cannot go back and forth with this person. That way lies madness. The second I got the attorneys, it was just that removal of me from that direct contact with him that made the difference realistically. Because once I had the attorneys, he couldn't talk to me, right, without kind of violating that legal element of, oh, we're negotiating something. And it was a huge protection to kind of let me move on and heal. Yeah. It strikes me too that as someone in law enforcement, he potentially knows a lot more than you would about things like restraining orders and gag orders and things like that. Yes. And that lack of knowledge on my part really put me at a disadvantage. So I remember even reading the gag order and I thought, this doesn't feel right, but maybe this is normal. I actually said that to my sister as well and said, I don't feel like I can sign this. And, you know, what I actually didn't know at the time either is that the entire time we were going back and forth with each other, he was actually filing his very first restraining order. I never knew because he never served it on me and never even mentioned it. And I think he was holding it in the wings, actually. In the meantime, he was asking me to meet up with him. At first at the condo, he wanted me to come there. Then he was asking me to meet up with him at Starbucks. And so he was sort of playing a bunch of different games in the background, knowing so much about the system and what to do. And there I was, clueless. I'd never been in a situation like this before. Keep in mind, I only had one serious relationship prior to him. I was kind of outmatched, you know? And so in those situations, your best bet is to bring in lawyers who at the very least know the law and your rights and can advocate for you. And they're removed enough from the situation that they can act as an impartial party, which is so helpful with these people because, you know, someone with that personality type is all about doing things to try and push your buttons or create a lot of emotion and drama. And when you take that element out of it, it really takes the power away from them. And so, of course, once I got the attorneys, we were able to negotiate a settlement agreement where he had six months to assume the mortgage on the condo. And if he didn't assume it, we agreed that we would sell it. And then there was a clause for how we would split the proceeds of the sale. And so we both went off our separate ways, you know, no contact. I didn't even follow him on social media. I had no idea what he was doing. I would actually often tell friends that I'm sure he moved on because these types of people have a tendency to get back into a serious relationship very quickly. Uh, <laughs> and he had the added, you know, need of having a second income, right, for the condo. So I knew that he was going to find someone. I moved on with my life too. I actually had a boyfriend in the interim. I got a new job to feel kind of safe, you know, because he had had people checking up at me at Disney, which is his favorite place. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it was interesting. I, you know, I always joke with people. I'm like, you know, I enjoy Disney and I now have an eight month old daughter and I'm sure we will be at Disney at some point in the future because she's, you know, a little one. But I do think, and I'm sure there's going to be some haters who can come at me for this, that if you are a 36 year old man and you are going there three or four times a week, sometimes more, and you don't have any children. <laughs> I, it's a little strange. It's a little strange. <laughs> you know? So just heads up to anyone out there if you're dating someone and they want to spend most of their week at Disney. Keep in mind, Disney is not an easy place to get into or out of. Like there's an intense amount of traffic. So like there was some serious motivation there to be at Disney on a regular basis. Yeah. He also had kind of an obsession with the bell archetype, which, you know, a little bit me, right? The brown hair, brown eyes, pale skin. I love books, blah, blah, blah. Which I think, if you know, the Beauty and the Beast story has a potentially unhealthy obsession to have because it, you know, might suggest, for example, that you see yourself as the beast who keeps Belle in captive, which obviously kind of resonates with my experience of that relationship. So as I already mentioned, we both moved on. You know, I was dating, I was doing my MBA, working in a new place where I actually got more money than I made at Disney. So really trying to rebuild my life after the abuse I think the one mistake that I made at the time was that I didn't really seek out therapy for all of the PTSD I had from the relationship, which, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had gotten started on that earlier because it was obviously a very, very traumatic relationship in a number of ways, very scary, and it does a number on you. But I was still doing, I think, actually relatively well, you know, considering what I had been through. You know, six months came and went pretty quickly. I was so grateful to have the peace in the interim. But when the deadline was approaching for the assumption of the mortgage, I kind of had this sense of dread because I had a really strong feeling that he might either not have started the process or wanted to keep me somehow locked into that situation or simply that he just wasn't going to be able to qualify because, you know, Throughout the time I knew him, he always lived way outside of his means. So yeah, I had no doubt that he had a lot of credit card debt racked up, often living kind of paycheck to paycheck. He borrowed money from me on more than one occasion and sometimes large sums. Like I actually paid over $2,000 of his taxes one year because, you know, he had been living outside of his means. I was worried, <laughs> but, you know, I thought, okay, you know what? It's been six months. He's probably moved on. Let me just reach out to the mortgage company and see what's going on. Well, sure enough, when I reached out to them, they told me, yeah, he hasn't filed the paperwork yet. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, he's only got two weeks to go. <laughs> he's supposed to have the mortgage completed, the mortgage assumption completed at that time. And he hasn't even started the paperwork. So I reached out to him and just said, hey, I know you haven't started yet. Are you intending to file the paperwork. No response. <laughs> and then later, the mortgage company tells me, okay, he's filed the paperwork. And they actually send me a copy of it. Because keep in mind, I'm actually on the mortgage. I'm on the deed. So they're giving me all of this information. Well, I see a name on the paperwork I can't quite make out because it's a signature. And it didn't look like his mom's name. And I thought, aha. So he did meet someone. And it looks like he is getting her to go in on the mortgage with him. 
initially, I remember thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> this is good because if he's got a second person, a second income, this will hopefully happen. And also he's moved on, which is great because that means his focus won't be on me. Well, the problem is I didn't know who she was at the time, but I now know was not actually like earning a salary. They ended up getting denied for the mortgage assumption. And he asked for an extension actually on the mortgage assumption. And I told him no, obviously, because I thought, oh, great, you know, if he can't afford it now, the extension is really just buying him time to live in a property that, according to our agreement, I should be able to sell. And I had also obviously experienced a great deal of financial loss as a result of the abusive relationship, which is quite common in these situations. I've talked to so many survivors who told me they also lost lots of possessions, oftentimes loaned a lot of money or racked up credit card debt that their abuser basically pressured them to rack up so that he could take a trip or something along those lines. And he actually did do that to me. He pressured me to open a credit card so I could pay for a trip to Seattle where he wanted to go. It's not uncommon for this to happen in these types of relationships. And so, you know, I thought this will be good and, you know, we can sell it and then both move on to our separate ways. He'll get some money, I'll get some money. The value of the property had actually gone up over the year since it was new construction in a popular area. You know, it was walking distance actually to this kind of packing house type arrangement with little places to eat. So very kind of an up and coming neighborhood. And that's when you know, all hell broke loose <laughs> when I said no. How did you first become aware of what was happening in terms of the cyber stalking and the threatening messages? So the initial things that made me suspicious something was going on and really triggered a lot of anxiety and fear because it was unusual activity. I started getting these emails and a LinkedIn request from someone who said that his name was Jason Rayburn. And what was interesting is I had actually dated a Jason between breaking up with Ian and this time. I wasn't still dating him, but I remember when I first saw Jason, I thought, oh my God, he was stalking me the whole time because he had been stalking me during the relationship. He always seemed to know where I was and he had installed cameras in the house. And so obviously for me, it logically followed like, oh my gosh, he must have been checking up on me in between. And he knows that I dated a Jason, and that's why he's doing this. I actually didn't know that Jason Rayburn was Angela Diaz's ex-boyfriend, someone she had dated. So these emails were from a Gmail account. I think it was jray7111 at gmail.com. And they said, hi, Michelle, you know, I know that Ian did all this horrible stuff to you. Angela's in this relationship with him. You need to reach out to Angela and tell her what he did to you and save her. It obviously immediately flagged me because wow. I thought, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like if you know so much about how bad Ian is, why wouldn't you just reach out to Angela yourself? So I responded back to this email and I said, hi, who are you and how do you know about me? If you know all of this about Ian, why don't you reach out to Angela yourself? <laughs> yeah. And I got a message back that the account had actually been closed. And I thought, uh-oh, okay, that's suspicious. You will actually see if you will look up some of the early articles on my case, the city of Anaheim Police Department talking about how everything was masked with virtual private networks and there was no way for us to easily investigate this. <laughs> well, uh -huh. there were actually quite a few emails that 
were not messed with the VPN, meaning they were not on a VPN when they sent these emails. And you could actually, from the IP addresses in the JRay emails, see that it went straight back to the condo that Ian and Angela lived in. Your condo. Yes, the <laughs> condo that I bought that they were living in. Yeah. It went right back to that location. When you used even just like the simple online software that any Joe Schmo has access to online, so it wasn't something that took a lot of sophistication, even for not that I want to discount you know, my parents' intelligence level. They're very intelligent people, but they were quickly able to discover and figure all right. of this out by doing some online research and reading. Yeah. I mean, that's our second question, right? Yeah. It, it, it strikes me that it would have been very simple investigative work to confirm that you weren't the person behind these emails and postings, like tracing the IP or confirming the timing. Why do you think that the Anaheim detectives didn't thoroughly investigate before you were arrested? Yeah, it's such an interesting situation because there are so many layers to the why, or at least what I see as the why. One is, of course, that Ian was law enforcement himself. And so, you know, there's something that they call the blue wall of silence. That's where law enforcement protects other law enforcement, even sometimes in situations where they're not doing something okay. I do think that there was an element of looking the other way because, for example, the lead detective in the case, Detective Kunha, had made a request to Craigslist to figure out who was posting these ads and responding to these ads. And they actually only got one result back. And the result was a email north of Light's End. And he calls up Ian and he actually asks him, whose email is this? And Ian says, oh, it's mine. And you would think that would immediately flag him and say, well, wait a second. If there's only one person involved in these messages back and forth, how in the heck could Michelle even know that these messages were happening, right? How could she then lift the content of the messages and put them in emails? She wouldn't be able to. It just logically does not follow at all. <laughs> you know, it's like in your face. Okay, something's wrong here. That right there should have at least been enough for him to do a deeper investigation into Ian and Angela. And it should have been enough for him to call me up on the phone because calling me and talking to me on the phone would have yielded a conversation where I told him, hey, I was in locations where I didn't even have access to my devices and I can prove for this six hour period I had no access while all these things were happening. And also here's this IP addresses goes right back to the condo. Okay, that's a little suspicious too. You know, all of these things, they could have looked through my devices and seen what my activity was. They could have actually looked through Ian and Angela's devices to see what kind of activity was on there. But they didn't do any of this. I had actually been calling the city of Anaheim Police Department. I think I called at least three times and I left two voicemail messages for the person assigned to my case. So I actually took the initiative because I wasn't hearing from them. And I called up their front desk and I said, okay, here's my name. I got my case number. I got the extension of the person assigned to investigate my case. I called the extension and left voicemail messages and I never heard back. So it was very much an unwillingness to do the proper investigation. And when you were arrested, your devices were confiscated, weren't they? Yes. And that first arrest, they actually did not have an arrest warrant. They only had a search warrant at that arrest. So they showed up with a search warrant for my devices. I eagerly handed them over because I was so relieved that someone was there to investigate. I thought, oh, thank God. 
I'm going to hand over my devices. They're going to see nothing on them because I haven't been doing anything. And my troubles are going to be over, you know? I actually gave them the passcode to my cell phone because I thought, okay, yes, like here, please open it up, right. look through it. There's please not, look. You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he saw that Ian and Angela had copied me, like Carbon copied me on an email, and they took that as enough evidence to put me in handcuffs that night. And I just remember feeling shock, total shock, because I thought, surely that can't be enough to arrest someone. I mean, you know, anyone can Carbon copy you on an email. I've actually often thought of, wild scenarios where I'm like, well, if that's enough to get someone arrested, I could just start carbon copying anyone who I don't like on an email with threats in it and just say, okay, here's someone who's carbon copied on it. They must be involved. In this situation, it was one of those things where I've often told people, you either have to assume that this detective was a complete imbecile or that he was so biased against me because of the law enforcement element. Like there was only two options there. There's only almost like a corrupt level of bias against anyone who's not law enforcement. And this detective actually worked in the sex crimes unit. So he worked with victims of sexual assault, which often overlaps, right, with intimate partner bat violence. And I actually remember when he told me that Angela had been harmed the night they arrested me because I was like, well, why am I getting arrested? What happened? You know, did something happen? And he said, Angela got hurt, which of course we now know was completely faked. But <laughs> I actually told him, I said, you know, that doesn't make any sense for me to harm another woman. Like, yeah, I would never do to her what Ian did to me. Ian hurt me. He got violent with me. He raped me. And his response was, oh yeah? Well, then how come you never reported it? And I think that speaks to the fact that in our society, we still have these really ingrained, even in people who theoretically should be really well-trained in intimate partner violence and the dynamics and why victims don't report, these really ingrained beliefs about what it's like to be a victim and, oh, if you don't report it right away, it must be because it didn't happen. Instead of assuming, oh, you probably didn't report it because you were dealing with a law enforcement officer and you were very scared. And not to mention, I did actually report to security on my campus, security at my workplace, that something had happened. I just didn't feel comfortable going to law enforcement because I was dealing with a law enforcement officer. And so I think when I look back, I just see that there was so much bias against the victim and such a willingness to protect someone else who is in law enforcement, even when the evidence didn't support it. Yeah. So as we mentioned earlier, your ex was recently convicted by a federal jury of cyber stalking, among other charges, but this took years and significant effort and cost on your part. Why were you committed to seeing it through, even though it must have been really difficult to do that? So difficult. Talk about a marathon. I will say that probably part of the reason that I saw it through is I didn't go into it thinking it would take that long or that much effort. Again, just very naive. Yeah. Once you're in it, you're in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where I just remember thinking when I first got out, I thought, well, City of Anaheim and Ian and everyone, they clearly did something so bad, right? So surely everyone will just want to make things right and will want to take accountability. <laughs> That's my you know, naive optimist speaking. I just didn't think it was going to take that long or that much work. I mean, it took, it was like five or six years for the civil lawsuit and then another couple years for the criminal lawsuit against Ian. I should say the criminal charges against Ian. 
You know, everyone's a little different, but I have a very strong sense of justice. And I think we often see victims as these passive, weak people who don't stand up for themselves. That's often not actually the case. Many of us are actually very strong people. And I have always been a advocate for others, especially others who are in disempowered positions. I would say that's actually a big part of my identity and always has been. You know, I was just really committed to being kind of a good force in the world. And I wouldn't say that I'm perfect by any stretch. There's probably a ton more that I could be doing. But for me, this was such a miscarriage of justice. And it was also so related to what so many other women go through out there. And men too, because men, you know, are not immune from being victims of intimate partner violence. But I knew that if I took a stand on this issue, that it would help create a ripple effect where people would become more educated on these issues, in particular issues of how cyber crime and cyber stalking intersects with intimate partner violence, which is you know a little bit of a newer area that I would say that people don't always fully understand or have a really good awareness of. And I think now we're starting to, I think now we're starting to talk about this more, but uh, I knew it was going to help their people. Yeah. I mean, we talk so much and we see so much in the news about identity theft where someone's had their social security number stolen for financial gain or other types of scams online, but your situation's very different. I mean, this has been someone impersonating you and it was a violation of privacy and all of those things. Is there any way that someone could recognize a situation like this or protect themselves from someone intent on impersonating them online or causing harm? What advice would you have? Okay, so first of all, I would tell anyone that don't beat yourself up if you aren't fully able to successfully protect yourself because despite having been through this situation, I will be the first to tell you that it was not the last time that I experienced intimate partner violence or even the last time that someone used, you know, whether they got the passcode to my cell phone or did something online, you know, used those avenues as a way to harass and abuse me. It happens. There are a lot of people out there who do have malicious intent or just want to have power and control over other people. But if I were to give advice, the first thing is don't ever share or give out your passcodes to anyone, even someone in an intimate partner relationship. You know, my parents have access to each other's phone, but they've also been married for like 35 years now. You know, they know each other really well. There's no dynamic where they're even feeling the need to go through each other's phones. So, you know, okay, yes, that's different. But I've actually had people who I've only been dating for, you know, a few weeks ask for that information. That's a huge red flag because they don't have any reason to need access to that so early on. And I would actually argue, wait a year or two before you even think about like letting them into your digital life in that kind of a way, if you even do at that point. Because once they have that access, there's so much information they can get a hold of, so much that they can do. I think I remember reading that you had seen some emails come through that were asking you to verify accounts created under different names. Yes. So in that situation, you know, you're really dependent. I call them the Microsoft and Google gods because we all sort of depend on email communication these days. And we're so dependent on their policies and procedures, you know, for our safety. But they're not always, I think, super on top of kind of protecting their users. I did get emails to verify Microsoft accounts. 
I immediately emailed their kind of internal like security for those situations. So they actually put in those emails, like if this was not you, then go here or email this email or forward this email to whomever and we'll investigate. So I did just that. They never got back to me, but I will say having that email in my outbox, it ended up being a level of protection, right? Because it was enough to kind of say, okay, she was flagging this to two different entities. There's also actually a federal bureau called the IC3, Internet Crimes is what the IC stands for. And it is actually the official place where you're supposed to report, you know, these types of crimes. I will say they were very slow (laughs) to investigate this. So I guess the wheels of justice turned slowly, but also another situation where having that report loaded into the system was a good thing. I did actually report even the emails asking me to verify Craigslist posts. I reported those to Craigslist as well. And then, of course, obviously, if you get one of those emails and it's not you, don't click on the verification, (laughs) which, you know, would help would be obvious to people. But I also think some of us, you know, curiosity kind of takes over in those moments. I probably would click on it. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, oh, I kind of want to see what they're up to. And the fact that I didn't click on those obviously helped because if I clicked on it, it would have suggested that somehow I was involved in trying to verify these accounts. I think a lot of people would be inclined to click Yeah. I don't know what took over at that time, but I do think there's something to be said for survival instincts kicking in. Right. (laughs) And I think mine did in that situation. But yeah, don't click on it. I think what's interesting to note here, too, is that some of the things that you're talking about that you have to do to protect yourself in and of itself is very time consuming. You know, it's time consuming to go through and report all of these things and to try to track down what's actually happening. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, I actually talked to other survivors of intimate partner violence where they asked me for advice in their situation or help in their situation. And, you know, when I'm telling them these things, I'm actually almost having kind of an out-of-body experience watching the conversation from afar and thinking, I'm telling this person to go through so much work and labor and effort. And I think what is sometimes disappointing to me as a society is that we put all of the burden on survivors to do all of this work to protect themselves. And I mean, if you think about it, I didn't have any help from law enforcement. I didn't have any help from anyone outside of my family doing all of this work. And thank God I had my family. Not all survivors have their close family circle who's there to really step up and do a lot of this work. It's exhausting. And you have to keep in mind, just because you're a survivor doesn't mean you aren't trying to still live your life. You have to make money. You have to have a job. You know, you have errands that you have to do. You want to have a social life. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a human still, you know, who wants to, really needs to relax, especially after what you've been through. You need downtime. You can't be mired at all of this all the time. It is a huge burden to place on survivors. And I think we often discount that. I often see people say, well, if they wanted to, they could, they could stand up to this, they could do that. And when I see people who are in these situations, my first response is like, when you are ready, I am here to help. Because I think that's the appropriate response to people who are having all of this burden placed on them. And then we expect them also to behave in perfect ways throughout. And I actually don't think I've ever seen a single survivor coming out of an abusive relationship who has handled it in what I guess society would deem the perfect way. They have been potentially emotionally reactive. They have been perhaps even kind of trying to tussle with their former abuser because these situations are difficult and the abuser is creating a lot of confusion and chaos. And this person has also 
just been through so much where they have a lot of PTSD, we need to give these people grace <laughs> and just recognize that they're doing the best they can. It's a lot to balance when you're trying to keep your life going. I and mean, this is why so many survivors end up losing their jobs and really experiencing a lot of financial loss because this person who's abusing them is really taking over the whole situation and their whole lives. And it's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes to get up in the morning when you're going through this stuff. I just remember, like, I look at who I am now kind of after all of this and who I was in the midst of all of that and how I was really living in survival mode and under so much stress all the time that it actually sometimes shocks me. I mean, I have an eight-month-old infant. And I would think most people would look at that and say, oh, yeah, it's really hard to have a baby. And I'm a single mom. So, I mean, add that level to it, you know, single working mom. I actually feel the most happy and relaxed I've felt since 2014. So almost 10 years. I think that speaks volumes for just how much stress these situations put you through. That actually having an infant is the delight <laughs> comparatively, <laughs> you know, because the stress of parenthood at least comes mixed with the joys and it's a stress that feels normal. And so I actually think to myself, okay, this is the kind of stress we're all meant to be able to handle. It doesn't make it easy. I'm not discounting how hard it is to be a parent, but most of us, I would say, are equipped to handle it and be okay, you know? <laughs> I can understand, obviously, postpartum depression. There's a lot of other things. But when I compare this to what it's like to be in an abuse dynamic, it really feels like you're in the midst of a war, right in the middle of your life, and you're just fighting for survival. And it is so scary. So I think we need to not put all the onus on survivors and really, as a society, step up and start doing a better job of supporting survivors Law enforcement needs to do a better job of understanding intimate partner violence and the dynamics. They need to do a better job of investigating. And then, of course, of prosecuting and following through, because I don't think we're going to change anything until we really make consequences for people who engage in this kind of behavior. Yeah. I think it's easy for society to say, oh, just put it behind you when you've experienced a trauma and move on. But, you know, it sounds like we just learned to live with something that's part of our story and you have started to move on and do that. How are you continuing to write your story and how are you now? What are some things that you have planned for the future? I don't think it ever gets easy after something like this, but I think that the best you can do is to create your own happiness in kind of the situation you've been handed. And that's what I've tried to do. So after everything happened and it was in the news, I never was able to find a healthy partner after that. You know, I often attracted toxic men. Part of that, I think, is just because there was an element of vulnerability to being online in the way that I was and online kind of as a public victim. I also think, obviously, it's very difficult to break those patterns in your dating after you've been through that. You know, I actually have often told people, I think the biggest challenge for me was that for most of us, when we're trying to kind of date better, you know, we're trying to raise the bar from what we've been through before. But the bar for me was truly in hell, <laughs> just as low as it could go. And so I often would date people and think, well, at least they're not raping me. At least they're not physically violent towards me. At least they're not installing cameras to watch me all day. So I would think, okay, I guess this is okay because it's not as bad as that was. And so unfortunately, I kind of kept dating people who still were emotionally abusive or toxic or really just disrespectful and unkind partners. So here I am now. 
I always wanted a family and I've had to sort of redefine what that means for me. You know, it's still a source of some pain. I always wanted to, you know, meet, you know, a healthy partner and have a family, maybe two or three kids because I love children. But what I will say is that having my daughter has been absolutely the most beautiful thing that could have happened for me. And it's actually the first time in my life where probably partly because of how many bad relationships I've been in and also because of just how fulfilling it is to be a mom to her that I actually am really enjoying being single. <laughs> yeah. And it's like relaxing, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh my God, finally, I don't have some man who is gaslighting me or telling me I'm too sensitive for something that I'm absolutely not being too sensitive about or just doing shady things. And I can really focus on myself. It is nice to finally start thinking about creative projects that I want to do in the future. I mentioned offline that I am negotiating, you know, the life rights to a movie, potentially. We'll see. Cross my fingers. And really learning how to advocate for myself through that process, which is a new experience for me of actually speaking up and saying, you know, this is what I want for my story. This is how I want it to be told. I'm working on a book. My daughter's a little young now for this, but when she's older, you know, I'm just really envisioning traveling with her, taking her to museums. And that gives me so much hope. She has a strong personality already, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> And when I look at her, I think I am excited to show her an example of a strong female figure who stands up for herself and does not let bullies push her around and is vocal, advocates for herself, advocates for other people as well, and isn't afraid to do so and experiences life fully and is really empowered and happy. I can help her break these cycles. It often starts, I think, with that, with showing our children an example of a different way. I think that also has been what has made me really hesitant to date again, is that I know that it's not that I don't still crave companionship or I don't still want to maybe get married one day, but I'm very thoughtful now about it because I want to make sure that the type of man that I have in my life is someone who will treat me in a way it will be a great example for my daughter of what she should expect and will really cherish us. And that kind of makes me smile because there was a time where I was kind of so desperate to find someone just so I could have a family. I was settling for people who were just not treating me well. And to think about now as a mom, like raising kids in that environment is a little heartbreaking, actually. And, you know, I think Everyone's story is different and everyone's happy ending is different. But I think that I'm finally in a place where if I end up and it's just kind of me and her and I end up alone, like I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. We've been talking with Michelle Hadley for Cybercrime Radio. I'm Heather Engel.